You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Thomas Berceau, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskill and presented by the National Lipid Association. Welcome to Lipid Luminations. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, your host, and joining me today is Cindy Conroy, a registered dietitian with the Iowa Heart Center Lipid Clinic, and she's here to discuss practical approaches for the successful implementation of a lifestyle change, education, and risk factor management program. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's quite a mouthful, a lifestyle change, education, and risk factor management program. What does that mean? Well, essentially that means we deal primarily with cardiology patients, but also primary prevention patients that are interested in lowering their lipids, but also working on other lifestyle issues in regards to metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So it's a, another name for TLC. That's correct. And TLC, therapeutic lifestyle change or tender loving care, it probably involves a little of both. That's exactly right. A lot of both. So why are you, Cindy Conroy, good at it versus other places that are not? Well, I think the Iowa Heart Center has an approach that's maybe a little different from a lot of facilities. We have always utilized dietitians as our primary line of defense with the patients in terms of lipid clinic and risk factor management. All the behavior modification techniques that are used to modify people's behaviors we use when we talk to people about their diets and it carries over to their exercise regimens and looking at smoking cessation, etc. So we've always utilized dietitians in the lipid clinic just as the front-line person, and then we go from there if we need other specialists. Well, what's the first thing that you usually address with a patient when they come in and decide that, or someone has decided for them that they need some lifestyle changes? What do you focus on first that is actually not the easiest, but the most likely to succeed? Usually we do a pretty in-depth interview with them to see what things they feel they can make changes in. You know, it's hard to impose your restrictions on people if they're not even willing to make minor changes. So I usually like to have them choose one or two things that they are willing to work on as starting points and then work from there. So let's do a a real-life example. Today or yesterday, what did the patients say they're willing to change and you kind of jumped on it with them? Well, for instance, I had an individual with very high triglycerides, and they were used to drinking six to eight cans of regular pop a day, and they were willing to cut that in half. They're not willing to give it up completely or change the diet pop, but to cut it in half is a big step forward for them. So, you know, for the audience, if you have one pop a day, I've read that that could translate into about 13 pounds in a year. Is that true? That would be correct. So how does that happen? Does the sugar get turned into triglyceride, or does it go into the liver and get packaged as triglyceride? How does that work? If it's extra sugar in the diet, extra calories in the diet, it is packaged to some degree as triglycerides in the liver, and that's how it's transported then through the body, in addition to raising blood sugar. But for a lot of our people, it's just a matter of the extra sweets in their diets, whether it's baked goods or pop, it's just extra calories. It's not that they need it for survival. And so for them just to make small changes, like cutting down one can of pop a day, is going to make a significant difference over time. So are people amazed when they learn that their triglycerides are actually coming from sugar and not fats? Yes, they are. We have many, many patients who've been battling triglycerides for years, 
and they've never even heard the word sugar or baked goods in relationship to it. That part's been missed. Right. I mean, the last 30 years, people have been harping on a low-fat diet, and even the American Heart Association still encourages a low-fat diet, and it's really carbs that seem to be more dangerous to our health than fats. Well, I think what we see with our patients, at least, is that people eat a fairly steady diet of fats, but their sugar intake is what really varies from day to day in a lot of instances. You know, they may eat a lot of desserts because of a birthday party, and then they don't have any for a few days, and then their triglycerides spike. So, you know, it's more of a situational issue with the sugar, perhaps, than it is with the fats, which is kind of a day-to-day thing. So we just kind of refocus what their emphasis is on. So you are in the heart of, literally in the heart of America, in the heart of corn production, and everything I've read lately and seen lately is demonizing corn and high fructose corn syrup, and that we are, if you analyze the average American's hair, we are made up of 70% corn. So I'm wondering, do you talk to your patients about the overwhelming amount of corn in our diets? Not specifically, but we primarily take issue with reading labels and looking for sources of sugar, like the high fructose corn syrup, honey, molasses, you know, anything that's going to add the sweetener to the food. That's where we really focus our efforts. And then looking at portion control. I don't have a problem with individuals eating sugary things, but more often it's the portion or amount that they're eating that's the issue. Do you have in your clinic or anyone there, do they have a problem with artificial sweeteners? Because I've heard that they're not so bad, but what they do is they kind of train you to always want sweets. Yeah, that's true. We don't particularly outlaw them, but we do suggest, again, it gets back to the portion. You know, are you choosing the artificially sweetened goodies versus fresh fruits and vegetables? You need to perhaps be making some other choices along the line. So back to therapeutic lifestyle changes in a lipid clinic. What kind of staff do you need? Do you need a dietitian? Can you train a nurse, a PA, a nurse practitioner to do that? Well, in our clinic, we use primarily dietitians. We do have nurse practitioner that sees patients in the clinic, and she'll get patients started on cluing in on things like sugars and fats. But the real detailed instruction really needs to come from a dietitian. We have a lot more training as far as what to look for and what suggestions might be out there that they can use as alternative choices, portion control, that type of thing. Having access to an exercise physiologist is great, but it's not always practical in every situation. A lot of our patients have been to cardiac rehab at some time over the past, so they've got some idea of what they should be doing, and the cardiology nurses within the practice can help with those guidelines as well. Pharmacist, we've occasionally had a pharmacist or PharmD on staff within the office that we can ask questions and have them sit down with patients if there are a lot of questions, too, on their medications. So there's a variety of staff that can be utilized. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm talking with Cindy Conroy, a registered dietitian with the Iowa Heart Center Lipid Clinic. And we're talking about practical approaches to implement successful risk factor education and management programs. Cindy, what clinical elements should really be implemented that will help patient compliance? I think one of the main things is to have a personal contact with the patient. There's a lot of staff, as we just talked about, that could be utilized, whether it be the nurse, the dietitian, the nurse practitioner, the physician provider. But the patients need, I think, to have a personal contact with someone and have 
you might want to call it a case manager Mm -hmm. that they can always call and talk with no matter what their question, and that person can kind of coordinate their care within the clinic. So like anything else in medicine, the relationship is important, and some would say the relationship is really what's curative. I believe so. You know, one of our main goals for Lipid Clinic is to engage the patients in long-term risk factor management. We just don't bring them in once or twice and then send them on their way. Most of these patients are with us for an extended period of time, years, in fact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is that personal contact and knowing that you can always get an answer from someone by calling the clinic. And so I think that contact is important and the education process is continuous. And are there any factors that play out in the community that are important in terms of maximizing patients' follow-up? I think access is important, and especially these days with the cost of transportation and people worried about their jobs, not wanting to take time off. You know, access in the clinic is important, whether it be maybe having Saturday hours or later in the afternoon hours after work. Having satellite clinics, we have a network of clinics within the state of Iowa. Not all of them have lipid clinic as part of their function, but those clinics can send those calls on to the lipid clinic, and by phone, then we can contact the patient. So I think the networking so that the patients don't have to travel a long distance makes a big difference. We talk about lipid clinics, but it sounds like you're doing more than just managing their lipids. I mean, you're managing their sugars, you're managing their lifestyle, you're managing their exercise... Well, we do try and offer suggestions on all of those things. Our primary goal is just to improve their overall lifestyle and to reduce their risk. And so, you know, if we need to refer them to a diabetologist, we do that. If we need to get them set up with a wellness center in their local community, we do that. But we really truly are more of a case manager along with educators. How have EMRs impacted your management of patients and lipid clinic utilization? EMR has dramatically changed our practices in the last couple of years. We've reverted back to having more of the lipids managed by the individual cardiologists within the practice. Previously, almost all of the lipid profiles that came into the charts or records were sent through lipid clinic for review. And if changes needed to be made, we took care of it. Well, now it's going back to the cardiologist of record, and it gives them more ownership with the patient. It's working well in that respect. And then just those patients that are highest risk or are not tolerant of their medications or not doing well with their lifestyle changes are referred specifically back into the lipid clinic. Cindy, are there barriers that exist in Iowa that are unique to Iowa that affect patient compliance, or is it pretty much the same as everywhere? I would think that the barriers are going to be similar everywhere, whether it be access to care, money issues, you know, the job market these days is having a big impact, Mm -hmm. access to health care in general, prescription coverage, all of those things are pretty much across the board. I don't know that they're specific to Iowa necessarily. I think one of the things that might be more specific to us is our lifestyle in general. You know, we have very cold winters compared to the South. You know, Chicago would be the same way, but the upper Midwest, people don't get as much exercise through the winter, so we try to accommodate for that or get people to do more in the wintertime. And our diets, you know, a lot of us come from farm backgrounds, and so that may be a little bit different than the metro areas. But I think overall, we probably have the same types of barriers as everyone else. Are you seeing an economic effect in Iowa already in November? 
I think so. We have, of course, the Medicare D patients have pretty much all hit their donut hole, so they can't afford their medications. Mm -hmm. But also, food costs are going up. You know, the garden produce, the fresh markets aren't available now. We're already getting into the winter season, so food accessibility is becoming an issue as well for especially the older population. If someone's listening to the show right now and they've been thinking about starting up a lipid clinic or a lifestyle clinic, what would you tell them to definitely do and to definitely not do? I think definite do's, things that they need to have online when they get started is a provider, a physician or nurse practitioner that's very much in support of your clinic and that can lend assistance, whether it be seeing patients, writing prescriptions, going out in the community and promoting the clinic to other healthcare providers and the public. Without that physician or nurse practitioner backing you up, it's very difficult to get going and keep going. But also you need a lot of support staff, whether it be dietitians, nurses, whatever. The clinic's about 25 years old. We've tried many, many things over the years. Most things work just because we put a lot of thought into it before we try mm-hmm. anything new. I think you need to have a lot of cooperation within the community. Family physicians like to manage their own lipids, which is great, and you have to be respectful of that. If you have a physician that doesn't want anything to do with lipids and sends all his patients to you, that's great. We have a lot of OBGYN physicians that you know, they draw the lipids once a year when the ladies come in, but they don't know what to do with it after that. Mm-hmm. So they send them to us, and that's great. But we have to be respectful within the community that each provider has their own style of doing medicine. And last question is, how do you get your patients to stay on their medicines and uh, stay on their lifestyle programs? It seems very difficult to get human beings to stay with anything. Yes, it is. I think one of the big advantages that we've had over the years is that we've had a stable staff. I've personally been at Iowa Heart Center for 20 years, and so I have patients that I've been dealing with since I started 20 years ago. We send lab reminders, automated uh, lab reminders are generated by the computer that go out every 6 to, to 12 months, depending on their their check schedule. and we don't hear back from them, we call them. Um, They're scheduled for their office visits. If they don't come in, we call them. So it's that personal contact, I think, over time that makes the big difference. Well, Cindy Conroy, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Okay, well, thank you. My guest was Cindy Conroy, a registered dietitian with the Iowa Heart Center Lipid Clinic, and we were discussing practical approaches that would help implement lifestyle changes with our patients. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.